Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Smart People Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas, the other host. Hi, other host. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Smart People Podcast Amazon link. You know what that means, Chris? What's that? It means that people should head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, buy their stuff through Amazon like normal, and it credits us with uh, some nice pocket change here and there. Yeah, I think we're going to have to make everybody aware of this given the holiday season coming up. We're going to have to go through this every week until then. Oh, absolutely. We'll slam it into the ground. It's almost time for us to renew our website. Anyways, today on the podcast, we will not disappoint. We bring you a very smart man, hence Smart People Podcast. Today, we speak with Ron Suskind. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning American journalist and best-selling author. He goes through in the interview how he got to where he is, but briefly, he went to Columbia and got his master's degree in journalism. He then went to a couple different papers before writing for the Wall Street Journal for seven years, where he was their senior national affairs writer. While writing for the Wall Street Journal, he put together a series of articles in what became his first best-selling book, which is titled A Hope in the Unseen. He also likes to write about different presidential campaigns. He, worked, he, he writes on the George Bush campaign and his newest book, where he talks about Obama and the Economy, which is called Confidence Men. He's appeared on numerous different things. He's been on The Daily Show, Colbert Report, Today Show, Nightline, 60 Minutes. He's written for New York Times, a bunch of other magazines, journals, publications. Awesome guy, really well-spoken, knows his stuff. 
In this book, he spoke with over 200 people, recording over 700 hours of an interview. And one of those interviews was with the president himself in a, in a candid, straightforward interview, which he goes into depth in both our interview and the book, Confidence Men. So it was a good time and something that uh, John and I always enjoy talking about, which is politics and the economy all rolled into one. Yeah, Chris, I was going to say, why did we choose to, to talk to Ron? Is there is there a little something going on right now that perhaps might have swayed this decision? Well, I mean, I personally think I should be the voice behind Occupy Washington, D.C. Well, they do need a voice, that's for sure. And I, I, I can do that. Yeah, I got time for that, man. I got time. But you and I got into a, what, two-hour conversation the other day about the, uh, the 99% versus the 1% and where we agree and where we disagree. It always it always seems to get heated. I wish we had microphones near us on those occasions. I don't know how much of the keyboard clicking it would have picked up though. I think that conversation was via <laughs> via Gchat. Well, that's because you're not busy at your office and I'm not busy at my house. So, sometimes a true story. But anyway, so we hope you guys enjoy the interview which we're about to bring you. Also, want to let you know we need friends on Facebook. I mean, we just need you guys to swing by, enter our virtual reality world of family at Smart People Podcast on Facebook, and check us out at our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can contact us through there. Let us know what you think, catch up on some previous episodes, and follow along on this journey of intelligence. Do it, and enjoy this interview with Ron Suskind. First, thanks for being on the show. I know you're a busy man. I guess I first want to kind of talk to you about, you know, you're a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, uh, multiple best-selling author, you know, um, you got a lot of good things under your belt. How did you get to where you are? How did you know you wanted to write for a living and kind of bring us up to date? Okay, I'll tell you a short version of that uh, of that tale. Um, I um, uh, went to a University of Virginia college and and after college, I was out running campaigns. I had done some of that when I was in college as kind of a young hired gun type. And I was running a campaign in Connecticut, a U.S. Senate race for a guy named John Downing. Now, I was you know, way too young to be doing this. I was only 22, but I kind of stumbled into it. And, and my, uh, my father had died when I was a kid, when I was 14, of cancer. And he uh, had written a, uh, a letter to me and my brother as he was dying uh, about living a worthwhile life. Um, and um, I was um, actually sitting in the campaign headquarters of this Connecticut uh, Senate race, filling out law school applications. And, and one of them, uh, my mother, who uh, said my father always wanted me to go to law school. Uh, but in any event, I was filling out these applications, and I reached into the bag and pulled this letter, this beautiful letter that he wrote to us, and try to attach the worthwhile life to being an attorney, which is you know really creative writing. And uh, I leave the essay on my desk. Uh, I come back after lunch, and the press secretary in the campaign, she says, look, I read that essay you left in the desk. I said, what do you mean you read the essay? She's like, look, if you leave it on the desk, we're going to read it. You're the campaign manager. And I said, okay. She's like, you know, from that essay, it doesn't sound much like you really want to go to law school. I said, really? You don't say. She's like, no. no. She says, but, you know, it's very well written. Have you ever, have you ever thought about writing? She's like, well, you think you'd be a journalist. You know, a lot of them do that. And 
go to journalism school. And so, yeah, she gave me a book, a famous uh, novel called Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwin Anderson, which I had never read, of course. It's like one of the 20th century's great novels. I read this book, and it's about the reminiscence of a young man coming of age. And I wrote a Winesburg-like reminiscence of my own college life at Columbia uh, University Graduate School of Journalism. I had no writing samples to send in, which a lot of young journalists, of course, had. And they accepted me. And that's how I, I became a... Uh, a writer, off I went, and and of course, you know, people say, "Geez, what a nice thing that young girl did for you." Where is she now? That girl that gave you such a good steer. At which at which point I can say, "Well, she's just in the kitchen uh, <laughs> to uh, run some errands now. Right now, uh, uh, that would be the fair Cornelia, wow, my wife and That's partner amazing. in all in all things." And um, and off I went through the various station stops. As a, after Columbia, I was a, a understaffer, so-called, a news clerk, news assistant, and interim reporter at the New York Times. Then I got farmed out to some a paper called the St. Petersburg Times, which is a great Florida paper, wins a lot of awards. And then I uh, was there for a year and a half, and then I went to uh, Boston. I was the uh, editor of a magazine called Boston Business. We had a lot of interesting writers. And then I went to the Wall Street Journal uh, covering banking and finance in New England, but a bit of an undercover guy because I was sort of writing magazine stories on the front page of the journal and helped start uh, – a magazine we uh, called Smart Money. I was like in the little team. And then I was the journal senior national affairs guy from 1993 until two, 2000. And uh, during that time, I wrote a book called A Hope in the Unseen, which starts uh, um, kind of the kernel of the book at the beginning. It's a series of stories that I wrote in the journal. And that uh, series of stories uh, won the uh, Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. And that's my first book. And then now I'm on the fifth book. So thank you for sharing that with us. And you recently wrote a book about the the Bush campaign. And now your newest book, Confidence Men, is more based on the, you know, Obama campaign along with the economic situation. And you do a great job of covering each political campaign and things like that. With Confidence Men, what was your primary goal? Were you just trying to show the, you know, the growth of Obama through his presidency or his first term? Or were you trying to explain more the economic crisis that we're going through? Um, well, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's yes to both in a way. I sort of joke around, you know, what's the book about? It's about America. It's <laughs> kind of my one line. Uh, you know, because the books are about a lot of things. Um, you know, you find a narrative arc, I guess is the best way to put it, the spine of the book from which, you know, the ribs spring and that forms its body. And, and I think the spine of the book is the collapse of the U.S. economy starting in 2007. There's a lot of lead up as to how that happened. That's a story that a lot of it is centered on Wall Street, on New York, which ends up being the epicenter. Um, really, it's our financial capital. And at one point, I sort of talk about us being a nation of two capitals, the financial capital and the political capital. And um, and, and you see the economy collapsing. And you also see, uh, as that happens, the rise of uh, Barack Obama, because those things are linked uh, clearly and certainly, and, and, uh, and how he does emerge uh, from the mist, from a place of uh, uh, not anonymity, but not a, a person who is well-known, who has been in the, the national stage very long, and and his rise then to the White House. And and the first half of the book is is uh, the, the fall of the economy, the rise of Obama. And, and the second half, for the most part, 
is um, is what happens then once he gets to to the political capital, and how the battle between our financial and political capitals unfold, with Obama having to tame uh, Washington uh, uh, and New York um, and stave off what could be a depression, a man with very little experience but enormous capacities. You know, it's the drama of these times, and, and at its heart, it's about the evolution of the country over the last four years, as well as the the evolution and education, as it says in the subtitle, of this era's central actor, uh, Barack Obama. The book seems to focus on Barack Obama's, I guess, inexperience as what you could call a manager within, I guess, the economic sense, and then a staff that really didn't help him out in ways. There was a lot of you know bickering between staff members and just rivalries that didn't get along. Can you explain to our listeners what really went on during the crisis of 2008 in terms of the staff butting heads? Well, Obama was elected under a, a certain premise, um, and it was emerged from his campaign that that he would be a particularly forceful leader. He was ahead of everyone else, all the other politicians in America, in understanding this notion of a battle between the two capitals, and that, and that the political capital, busted though it is, um, needs to step up to really uh, force corrections on the financial capital, uh, and that uh, you know New York and the financial system uh, really does define a great deal of the lives of people. Across America, at their kitchen tables, and and um and that's where he was coming through the election with a team around him that was very strident along those lines, and it was it certainly was a successful campaign. And what you find is that many of the advisors around Obama, many of whom served Bill Clinton, uh, were not really that attentive to something of the miracle of the rise of Barack Obama, the extraordinary uh, campaign, you know, the uh, the crusade almost that carries him to the White House. And they were particularly mindful of the nature either of his mandate by virtue of that, that most of the political team, like David Axelrod and others, uh, had their eyes on that. But the, the team that really helped him run the government was not really connected to all of that. And and there was a great deal of, of bickering between advisors because Obama really had trouble holding the middle, I guess is the best way to put it. He had never managed anything other than pretty much his one-man crusade, his one-man show. Of course, he did that brilliantly, uh, and he steps on top of the most complex managerial organism on the planet at a time of crisis. And what's interesting about the book are the twists and turns of what unfolds. You know, advisors are there to advise, but presidents must decide. And, and the difficulty, I think, for Obama was having to learn the, the nature of what only a president is able to do, which is make very, very tough decisions, even when the evidence is lacking, even when you're not going to get a clear path of this side versus that, of right or wrong. And I think his hope, very much like Jack Kennedy in the first days of his administration, also a young man of great promise and potential, was that you know Obama felt that you bring in the smartest people you can find with high IQs and sterling credentials, you put them in the room, they're going to come up with a solution. Obama searched for consensus among these advisors, and in large measure, he didn't get it. Um, at the same time, he didn't have sort of a natural infrastructure in terms of a chief of staff. Rahm Emanuel wasn't a, a classical pick or a natural pick for that job. 
Obama knew that. He was warned that Emmanuel's impulsive and emotional and not all that well organized. And Obama says, look, I'm a brilliant guy. I can do some of that job myself. That was not right. That was a misjudgment. And what you had is, is um, you know, let's just say enormous political capital that was spent a bit haphazardly, the kind of political capital with those 75% approval ratings and a Democratic Congress for Obama, two million people crying and clapping and cheering on that freezing day in, on the mall that, that you know, did not express itself with much coherence in terms of policy and actually uh, quite a bit of havoc, which I do mark through the shank of the book, um, you know, and of course, you know, I make sure that it unfolds so that readers understand not just all the key uh, disclosures that have driven the news cycles, but also the context of intent and motive, who these characters are, what it feels like to be next to them, to be in their shoes. And at the end, Obama speaks in a very long interview where I lay out all the <clears throat> disclosures of having this extraordinary access to all of his key advisors, you know, hour and after hour of you know, long taped interviews. and. You know, with some of it is hard for him to hear, you know, not that he denies any of it, and frankly, none of it really is news to him, but it prompts Obama to dig deep to ask himself there on that on the tape in that interview some very, uh, I think, provocative questions about the nature of leadership and what he's learned during these tough times. You know, he says he's grown. He says this adversity has hardened him, deepened him, steeled him in a way. Uh, to understand what need be done and help them grow into the fullness of the office. It seemed to me like during the Bush administration, George Bush had an idea and he said, we're going to do it. And he just did it. He he got things done. And I think a lot of the people will fault the Obama administration for not being able to get things done. Is that because, in your opinion, the people he's put in place, the team he's built, even within the Democratic Party, he can't get people to agree on moving forward on issues? Well, I, well it's interesting. In, in the interview I did with John Stewart, the day the book was uh, was published on September 20th, uh, was really quite telling. Stewart, of course, is, a, is just a brilliant guy. He's not just a, a riotously funny guy, but he's, he's really quite bright. He's really a smart cookie. And, and he said something sort of half in jest at the end of the interview, half not. I think it's on the extended portion, but he's like, you know, because he knew I wrote three books about George Bush and the Bush era, his, the conduct and character of the Bush-Cheney administration and all that. And and I'd been on the show about, you know, that stuff. Um, and he's sort of like, do we, uh, you know, do we swing uh, too far in the other direction from Bush <laughs> to Obama? You know, uh, <laughs> from Bush is sort of incurious. You know, I don't care about the briefing. You know, I'm going with my gut. You know, my, my my instinct. You know, that whole Bush thing. Right. You know, uh, I'm the decider. You know, did we go? Did we swing all the way over from that often impulsive, non-analytical, you know, emotive and go with your gut guy, Bush, to a guy who is um, you know, discursive. And, uh, you know, sometimes a bit Hamlet-like. And uh, I think, you know, half in jest but half not, Stewart was making a pretty sound point. Uh, Obama, you couldn't, you know, in a genetics lab, you couldn't create a guy in Obama who's who's more the opposite of Bush. Right. And I think and, that has expressed yeah. itself in, in uh, Obama finding that uh, his belief in the powerful – 
and convincing uh, might of persuasion based on the facts, based on the available data, that that will bring people around, you know, even when it might not be in their short-term interest to agree and maybe not in their financial interest to agree, which gets me back to that old Upton Sinclair line that, you know, if somebody's, you know, pocketbook is going to be diminished by agreeing with you, they're simply not going to agree with you. It's nothing personal. It's just, you know, self-interest. And, you know, I think Obama during the first two years, as he, as he says to me in this interview, sort of learned some hard lessons about that, that, you know, that, that this notion of consensus may be chimerical. You know, people are, are, even if they believe in their hearts that your position is sound and they see some middle ground, they often will not go there unless they're forced to and forced to buy a very clear-sighted um, and often brazen exercise of power. You know, and that's why through the administration, various folks in, in the White House as well as in Congress were always hearkening back to what would Lyndon do, as in Lyndon Johnson, who also had a Democratic Congress, even, you know, a very strongly Democratic Congress. But, you know, also, you know, he was a master of the Senate, as Robert Carroll points out, and a master of you know, making sure people did uh, what he wanted them to do, no matter what, nothing personal. Have you seen President Obama go from what, you know, John Stewart said, where we've swung too far from Bush to closer to Bush now in terms of, you know, making decisions and, and moving forward with what he believes in? And also, as a follow on, what is the the one thing that that you've noticed about President Obama that you're most impressed with after following him from from 08 until present day? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he has moved. I think that's part of his evolution. I, I trust what he tells me, which is, in fact, that very thing. You know, he says, I want to get out in this last interview, which, uh, of course, people have read and cited <clears throat> widely, but um, it's really quite um, it's quite revealing. Or he says, look, I, Carter, Clinton, and I have what he called the policy wonks uh, disease, and I want to break free from some of my technocratic inclinations, he, Obama says. And Act more dynamically, my you know, in a more dynamic form of leadership. Basically, I make my decision, and that decision alone will change the landscape, and I'll push it forward. Express conviction, you know, not constantly be saying and the other side has merit in their position too, and let's split the middle. I think that's that clearly is what he says his evolution has has uh, has expressed and revealed and shown, and um, and I think you are seeing some of that. I think the thing that's you know most impressive about Obama is is the breadth of of his um, uh, insights, analytical insights into <clears throat> both uh, the issues of the American uh, experiment, its exceptionalism, but also you know the central role of you know his own journey as an actor on the American stage. I mean he. Uh, you know, you it's rare you find a president who can who can write like Obama can write. It's a bit intimidating for a writer to read, you know, dreams from my father and say, Wow, the guy's got chops. Really, good stuff. You know, he's got an ability to dig deeply into the human architecture, you know, uh that often novelists have, uh and poets, but very few others. And um and I think that um uh, that may be something that uh, expresses itself in a way that's valuable for the American public. Now, I, I know you did extensive research for this book. I read you interviewed over 200 people and 700-something-plus hours of interviews. 
I was just wondering, out of all that and the, the kind of free reign you were given in terms of you interviewed, like you said, everyone from the president down, what did you find to be the most shocking revelation that you had when talking to all these people? Well, I think the thing that was most surprising um, was many opportunities when Obama <clears throat> could have uh, could have acted boldly, and he um, was right there with the with the sword in his hand, and he just put the sword down. Uh, even when there was a lot to recommend, you know, plunging it into the chest of of, of some folks who were all but saying, "Do it, just get it over with," you know, whether it's the bankers. Uh, or some of the healthcare providers who understood cost needs to be reined in, and they, in a way, were ready for the president to express presidential power in terms of the greatest good for the greatest number, even if it meant they might be slain uh, in terms of their specific interest as an industry or as lobbyists or as folks uh, from a community like banking or healthcare. These are big complex systems that run through the society that really do define the lives of of people day to day. You know, money and risk, huge. Healthcare, you know, how long we can live and how well, huge. Uh, these systems are both broken in the country. That's no secret to anyone. And the self-correcting uh, hope, the hope that markets will self-correct, you know, and and move toward the glories of quote unquote efficiency, which sometimes I think are overstated. Uh, that hasn't happened in these two giant systems that are so defining and are busted. And and I think the feeling was it's time for the public sector, for the public uh, realm um, led by Obama to step up and force corrections, and corrections thereby in the in the direction of the wider of the ship of state rather than continue a drift uh, that's pretty much gone forward along the lines of, of, of from whence we came. And I think that was the thing that was most surprising. I'm getting the details of various meetings, and I'm like, well, here is your moment. And um, instead of expressing presidential power in those ways that I think historians will look back on and say that was a big opportunity missed, he would get right up to the edge and then pull back and say, you know, how can we come together? And that, you know, the kind of blended, split the middle, you know, balancing of interests uh, and uh, and positions. You know, it. We know that it's been more or less the way things have gone for quite a while. And and um, it's. I don't think what he kind of got elected for. I think he was elected to do something more dramatic. Um, but uh, that was is what surprised me the most is opportunities that often he created. Uh, or certainly were right there for the for the taking, and uh, and how in those first two years he did not seize those moments. Well, Ron, I think that's a, a perfect place to end here, and you know that hopefully will lead our readers to want to go pick up your book, Confidence Men, Wall Street, Washington, and the Education of a President. Um, do you want to point our readers to anywhere, or are you in the process of of writing any new books now? I mean, is there anything that you want to plug? No, well, you know, right now I. Um, you know, this book is uh, just about five weeks out, and um, you know, I would just tell you know young folks or people who you know want to click on Amazon where the book is. It's in every bookstore too, or your Kindle or what have you. Is it the book? Um, though it's consequential and it has uh, a lot of the uh, the goods, so to speak, that do sort of affect and drive news. Uh, it's really a the a story 
it's written novelistically. That's the way I write these books. And uh, though, of course, every word has to be true. They're nonfiction. But also, you know, I think that the readers are finding a great deal that they say, boy, this is kind of fascinating and interesting and fun. And, you know, it's like the unfolding narrative of the times in which we live. And, and I just feel like that's something readers deserve. You know, books should not be written like you're offering a deposition in court, you know, or offering some bloodless, you know, multi-page analysis at, the, at a think tank. You know, it's about the story of who we are and how we got into this spot we're in, how we might get out. Um, and often some things in the book that are quite hopeful is people are trying to figure it out. Like, well, you know, if the president does or doesn't do it, well, I don't know what that has to do with me. I've got to move on my own. Um, and, and I think that people generally understand that things work best when we kind of bend toward the sunlight and, and we, in, in the kind of miracle of what America has long been about is that the country has an enormous capacity to self-correct. That's the brilliance of our system. And this book, in a way, is about that. All right, Ron. Well, again, thank you so much. We appreciate, uh, appreciate your time. And uh, best of luck. I know, I know you don't need it. The book's already doing amazing. So yeah. thanks again. Okay, well, take care, guys. Be well. All right, you too. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Ron. You know, one thing that stuck with me in that interview was how at the very beginning he talks about the letter that his dad wrote him telling him that he wanted him to enjoy his life, do something he wanted to do, make a difference. And it's funny, man. Like, that's that's one of the things we're trying to do here, trying to figure out, trying to learn from people. And he just straight out came and said it. So I thought that was that was a pretty interesting introduction to a otherwise fantastic interview with Mr. Suskin. Wouldn't you say, Roach? I agree. I liked that advice a lot. So as we continue to do... One of the things that both Chris and I enjoy doing with our life and creating this podcast, we want you guys to be a huge part of it. Head on over to Facebook, facebook.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Like our page, get involved, hang out with everybody who's over there, get some discussions started. All right, guys, make sure to tune in next week. We got a whole list of amazing guests lined up. We'll keep these things coming at a regular pace. Appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it.